This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life. And the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day. And I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition, or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. This is episode 145. I am your host, Ben Colloy. If this is your first time here, you couldn't have picked a better episode to drop in for the first time because Paul just drops some amazing wisdom here. If this is your second, third, or you've been a longtime listener, this episode will not disappoint and it will compound on many of the themes that we've always talked about here on Military Veteran Dad. So the big question I have for you is, are you good at taking your own advice? I think most men struggle including myself. I literally have two podcasts where I spew all kinds of advice and I can't tell you how many times that I'm talking to you on this microphone and I'm really also talking to me. One thing that's always come through all my writing, anything I've created, a lot of times there's a lot of truth inside my head and when I give advice, that is usually the advice that I also need to hear. So remember that. When you are giving advice, remember that advice that you're probably giving is also really good advice that you also need to hear. There's a reason that you were pushed to lead with whatever advice that is. And it's also compounded because the military creates a culture where we have a large influence on others' directions, their thoughts, what they do every day. And as we're reflecting that, we also have to worry about leading by example. Leading by example is something that's preached throughout military leadership culture. But again... How many people do you know, either anywhere in the chain of command, that really struggle to walk the walk, that may be out there hiding behind their rank, being overweight and not going out there and PTing like the rest of the platoon, whatever it may be, realize that taking your own advice is a call to action. But we're also going to dive into another area because this was an area that hit close to Paul, who we're talking to today, and that is within the military, and the influence on our family. Paul used to talk about how he would talk to military units about family priority, about coming home, transitioning. And his story led to a divorce because he wasn't influencing the advice that he gave to his soldiers on his own life. And Paul today talked about his blindness to prioritizing his marriage and how it cost him in the end, what he had wrong with his thinking, and how he could do it differently if he had a chance to do it over again. He has found success on the other side of transition. He is the CEO of a company called VetCorp LLC, and it's an amazing franchise agency helping veterans start disaster restoration businesses. Not something that any of me would have ever Googled prior to meeting Paul, but after hearing this conversation and building them this interview, it is an amazing opportunity that is perfectly designed for a veteran. It's nationally recognized little barrier to entry other than the cost to get into the franchise. And he has a 23-year career in the United States Army, and he's achieved a lot, and he's continuing to achieve and make an impact in his kids' lives and also in the lives of veterans. So without further ado, let's just get into this episode with Paul Huzar, and I'll see you on the other side for my big takeaway. Today, we are talking to Paul Huzar, CEO of VetCorps, and he's got a story as an Army officer trying to come out of the military, kind of doing what we all do, and his story is going to be one of one big piece of humble pie, and he's going to open it wide open for us to share his experience here in the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hey, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Or ben, I appreciate it. You know, it's funny that you say, Bill, because that is a common translation that people get. I have no idea. I kind of have an idea now because I went to Prague where I used to work, and in Prague, they would like... I'm in a foreign country where the headquarters was, and they'd walk up to me like, hey, Bill. And I'm like, 
I'm in a foreign country. Why is Bill something that they're calling me? And I would get it in emails. Like there's, they see Ben at the top, but they type, good morning, Bill. And I'm like, where's this Bill? And essentially what people do is when they see my name, they just take the B and the ill and throw it together. And all they can see is Bill and the E-N and the K just completely disappear. That's what I've kind of said. And I was telling from. myself, don't say Kilroy. Don't say Kilroy. <laughs> and then you say Bill, which is the other thing that people have have like progressively messed up. So welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited. This tell us a bit about your your military career and where you are today. Yeah. Well, first, can I tell you something about humble pie? Because you you mentioned that. Yes. One of my favorite quotes is humble pie. It's it doesn't taste very good, but it's so nutritious. It's so good for you, right? And uh, I've just learned that over the, my time in the military because I believe we're the greatest military in, in the face of the earth. Um, because we are so good at, at handing each other kind of our ass and, uh, and, and that doesn't taste good, but man, it's, it's so nutritious and so good for you. Nowhere so, better is that spoken in the Marine Corps new initiative to no longer treat Marines like inventory and actually treat them like people that uh, admission of humble pie from the commandant down of realizing we are not treating like inventory anymore. You are actually people with feelings and objectives and families and that's how we're going to treat you from going forward. Like that was an admission of humble pie as well. Yeah. And I appreciate that. So, yeah. Um, look, I, I went to West Point. That was kind of on a whim. I wasn't the kid that was going to do that. And just kind of crazy situation. I was at a college fair hanging around with a bunch of my guys and some guy I think profiled me and, and said, Hey, did you know West Point was a, a civil engineering school? I wanted to be a civil engineer. Um, then I went there and said, uh, I'd stay in the army till I stopped having fun. And, uh, 23 years later, um, I didn't stop having fun, but, um, kind of my family situation and everything and deployments and things. So I, I retired after 23 years. I had great jobs. Uh, 11 years of that time was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my career there as a Lieutenant and met my first unit in desert storm, jumping out of airplanes as a combat engineer. Uh, which was just incredibly fun. And then, you know, circling back, I commanded the same battalion that I was the second lieutenant in. And that was my second lock, uh, to last job before I left the Army. I culminated my career at uh, the, the Army's engineer school. I was a director of training and leader development, kind of known civilian title as the dean of the Army's engineer school. Um, so loved every minute of it. Spent a little bit of time with the Army Corps of Engineers, Got the Army paid for me to get my master's degree in civil engineering. Uh, was a master aid parachute, a sapper leader, pathfinder. Uh, so, but I, I liked all the kind of UA Army stuff more than the Army Corps of Engineers stuff. So, within that, there was a word that I kind of just hit me right away. It felt like you were looking for something that came from outside of yourself. So, like when you go into West Point, you graduate and you keep looking for something bigger. What was that kind of that feeling or what were you maybe chasing in the, this pursuit of more as a young army officer? Yeah. So the, the, the guy who profiled me to get me to go to West Point says, you know, so no, I'm going to, I'm going to go to an engineering school. He says, yeah. Did you know that West Point was the first civil engineering school in the, in the, in the United States? I, I didn't. And so I went back Then he hands me this card and it says, you know, it's the typical recruiting stuff they, they give you X percentage of the class or varsity letter winners, X percentage were team captains, X percentage were class presidents, valedictorians, all this other stuff. And I was like, hmm? And, uh, and it spurned, it, it kind of, it, it, it um, spawned my desire for competition. And I was like, wow, I could do that. I could, I could lead, I could be part of that. I could get, I could make it through that gauntlet. And then, you know, everything, you've got to graduate high enough in the class to get your selection of where you want to go and what branch and what duty station. I, I graduated high enough to get my first pick army Corps of engineers. Then I graduated high enough to get my first selection to become a paratrooper. And then, you know, paratrooper, I need to go to jump master school. I'm going to go to pathfinder school. I'm going to become a sapper leader, all those things. And uh, it was just like that, that it was, I think two things that kind of the competition aspect. I was a big team sports guy. I love that. And then also the desire to be part of something bigger than myself. And really those two things are tied to team sports, you know, accomplishing a common goal with a team, but also competing through that team. And, and that's what I found and what I love about the army. Who were you competing against? I feel like there was this person inside your head that like each <laughs> kind of like person that this presented this challenge, there was competitors in front of you, but there was also a narrative you were competing against in your head. 
Oh yeah. And, and it hasn't stopped to this day. <laughs> I think, um, you know, most successful people are, are goal oriented and they set goals for themselves. And, uh, you know, like my dad said, don't, don't leave the army. Don't, don't stop until you stop having fun. And I kept having fun because I kept finding these challenges, you know, um, after I was a lieutenant, I was, I was dangled with the opportunity to command a company. And that was something where I wanted to excel. And I heard that was the kind of the next step. And then after that, they dangled uh, graduate school. And man, that was something that I wanted to do. And it was another care, another opportunity to kind of measure myself against my civilian peers in graduate school. And then after that, they had the command of general staff college and army corps of engineers. And so it was another just things to strive for and continue to strive for. And the army's good at that, right? It's kind of in the military in general, upper outs, the pyramid, and uh, they give you things to strive for to continue to try and excel, but also be part of the team. So you get to measure yourself, but it's not like an individual sport where you're just competing by yourself. And how many years were you in the army? Say that again. How many years were you in the army? 23. 23 years. So in those 23 years, is there a moment that maybe you missed where you like didn't fully analyze it correctly to get out and that you maybe stayed in too long? Or was there any like self-reflection there for other men that might be listening to this podcast thinking of like, I'm going to do 20? Because that's the common uh, reflection that, well, like you got to do 20. That's the common uh, code that's assigned. Like you do your 20. You It's almost like the same thing as like my dad told me to get a job, sit, keep your head down, get a pension, do your 30 years and you retire and unicorns and rainbows show up. But that's often not the, the the bag of goods the military gives you because you hang on for that pension and you wait for your commands going away ceremony and then it's over and you're like, that was it? So I'm wondering maybe where in your reflection on that that you might have missed. Um, I, I think I was pretty blessed with a lot of good luck and, and a pretty good career. I mean, there's certainly times, not every time was great. But what I used to, because and I used to counsel both when I was a battalion commander and I was a dean of engineer school, I had fantastic group of subordinate officers and i would tell them um listen keep your parachute golden you've heard you've you know, heard the golden parachute thing right because if you keep your parachute golden and you're you're always making yourself marketable so that you could jump ship at any time prior to your retirement right you never become kind of the company yes man and um and i always felt like that because i i got a you know, I was a licensed professional engineer. I had a master's in engineering degree. I, I managed a large civil works project for the Army Corps of Engineers man, halfway through my career. So I felt like I could get out at any given time and, you know, make at least as much money as I was making, if not more. So kind of quality of life would be great. So I, I didn't feel like there was a time when I should have gotten out because I, each time, each of those assignments were good, really good assignments. They were fun for me. But I told my subordinates, you really have to do that. So at any given time, or, you know, some of us ran into really shitty bosses that put us in um, um, compromising positions. And you never have to be beholden to them or to the institution. And when you do that, you're leading the way that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines deserve, um, because you're leading for them, not for the kind of the next position or, you know, the the next um, aspirational thing in your career. You're, you're doing it because it's enjoyable, you have fun, and, and you want to serve the greater good, serve your, your troopers that you're leading. So let's pivot to a little bit of a sadder moment. So before we started to get hit record, you mentioned that you're currently going through a divorce and kind of like separating the family. Your kids are growing up, they're adults now, but you also have this now, this whole reflective of investing your time in different bank accounts and realizing that they weren't really bank accounts of savings, they were credit cards and you had to pay back with interest. So I'm wondering, where is that reflection kind of left you with looking back as well. Again, man, I don't know how you're coming up with these phrases, but you're reading me like a book. So <laughs> before I took command, um, literally in my change of command speech, I said uh, we were getting ready 30 days later to deploy to Iraq. And I said, listen, um, I, I need you all. And I was, I was taking command of an airborne battalion. I said, need you all to, uh, to make some deposits in the love bank because we're getting ready to make a major withdrawal from the love bank. And of course, I knew what I was saying. I was taking command of a battalion of paratroopers. They're like, oh, yes, sir. We're going to go home tonight and make deposits in the love bank. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew that, that that message would be sticky. And, and, and I also chose the word sticky on purpose, too, because it would, it would, it would resonate in, the, in their head. And they knew what that meant. And um, 
frankly, uh, I was important to me. I was, I was still coaching my kids sports went right before to the day we deployed. When we came back, I was coaching my kids sports. I was going out to, to have a date night with the wife and stuff. And then somewhere along my career, um, we stopped doing that. And, and I think part of it was we, we became really good friends. We pay, became really good parents. We were really good at what we were doing. We had two kids, you know, very close in age, playing travel soccer, divide and conquer, doing all these things. And, uh, and frankly, I, I had, I, I went back and I looked at it uh, and four out of seven years, I was physically gone from my family. I did not accompany short tour in Korea, went to Fort Bragg, was there for, uh, I guess about uh, 11 months, deployed on a six month tour, was home for 18 months, deployed for a year as a brigade S3, uh, was home for less than a year and deployed again as a battalion commander with TDYs and everything in terminary duty in, in between. And I tell people, I, I'm not blaming the Army because I love the Army. It did great things for my marriage, did great, great things for my family. Uh, my kids are true patriots. They understand service. Um, but I probably wasn't as honest with myself. And looking back on it, and I didn't follow my own advice as well enough as I should have to create that time for my primary relationship was my marriage. And um, hindsight's 2020. And it's right now in its position where it's um, it's very civil. We're, very, we're still very good friends, but it's just sad. We, we we lost something along the way. And I searched for it, and we went through marital counseling, and I went back to my counselor and said, why? Why did this happen? And she's like, well, I went through my notes, and I knew you were going to come back because you're the kind of guy who always has to know the why. And she said, it's the most common why in the book. You drifted apart over a series of years, and you didn't see it coming. So my advice is don't let it drift apart. Um, and, but, you, you know, you have to consciously decide not to let it drift apart. You have to do things to, to prevent that from happening. Something that I've learned interviewing all these dads over the years is that there is this word that we often don't like rank among the things we say yes to, and that's commitments. And the military is the easiest. It's the biggest elephant commitment in the room. And very few people are ever going to call you out for being committed to the military. I mean, you're serving your country on a selfless basis. Who's going to call you out on, a, on any normal basis of, of thinking? But if we think about the order of commitments, that the one that I noticed with the military dads the most is we get the priorities of commitments mixed up, that the one we made to our wife is till we're six feet under. Like literally to the end of time, there won't be a single commitment. There won't be a single piece of anything that you put your yes to that will outlast that commitment. But we don't prioritize that. And often we get the pecking order out of order with the idea that our kids are even more important than that commitment, that original commitment. And then you start getting caught up in life and you go through all those different things. And you start almost like thinking like you need to help your kids grow up into strong adults. But again, they're eventually going to leave. That commitment, you're still part of their life. Fatherhood just changes once they leave. But you're still left with the original commitment. And it's that like the roots of it underneath the surface where you can't actually see until it kind of becomes visible and you're like, oh man, this is kind of just dried up. The grass is no longer greener here. And I often shortcut it down to always kiss your wife first when you walk through the door. And this was advice gave me way back in the beginning of this podcast, because showing her the commitment that you're more important than the hugs to the kids, that you're more important than anything else in my life was that kind of reminder that yes, I love you kids, but I love her more. And it's that reminder to yourself, always kissing your wife first to be that signal of no matter what you choose with the military or any other priority, that one with your wife is going to be there at the end of time. Absolutely. And to the point where we, we were, you know, I spent 11 years at Fort Bragg and I was there as a major all the way through being battalion commander. And if you've ever been stationed in kind of that part of the country, you know, it's kind of the Bible belt. We were members of this really awesome church and uh, they had the kind of Wednesday nights that where you would go to church and your kids would go to kind of like children's church and they would have like adult classes and things. And, and I remember vividly, we went to this class, my wife and I, it was called, um, I think it was called Raising Kids God's Way. Uh, and we weren't like ultra religious, but we were uh, very spiritual and certainly committed to being good parents. And we thought this would be a great class. And I remember the one thing that was kind of most resonating to me was they said, your relationship with your wife should take primacy because that's what created your children. And, uh, and, and they should understand that they should always see that. 
and uh, you know, not going into too many details, there, there are things that happened that, um, that, you know, indicated that I, I didn't do that. And I, I even used to tell people I, I dedicated, like when I wasn't deployed, I was a coach for each one of my kids sports because I love sports. I grew up playing sports. I was recruited to play sports in college and, um, and my, both my kids were avid athletes. And so if I, I figured if I got to coach, um, you know, something that I enjoyed doing, something they enjoyed doing, and it was quality time we could spend together. So that was a no brainer for me. But then I would tell people, man, my, my three uh, roles that I really um, loved the most was being a leader in the military, being a coach and being a dad, because all three of those things, you know, when, you, when you're a leader in the military, you I mean, essentially you're coaching 18 year old privates, right? And the difference between coaching 18 year old privates in life and leading them is not a whole lot different than coaching your teenage kids, which is not a whole lot different than, you know, coaching your teenage kids on a soccer team. It's applying your, your magic sauce of being a good army officer in real life. And it, right. it's also where you learn to apply it outside of once you leave the military too, the more places you can learn to apply your skill set, the better off your transition is going to be. Right. And the, and the better coach I was, I found the better parent I was, the better parent I was, the better leader I was. But when I go back and look at that um, kind of reflectively, <laughs> husband isn't in that triad. And I was like, yeah, duh. <laughs> and, and I can only go back and, and think about it reflectively and go, you know, um, you, you didn't listen to your own advice through, throughout that whole, whole time. And, uh, and to be fair, I mean, you know, I think we, we, we both didn't because we thought, we had something solid and we both were being, you know, really good parents and really good yeah, friends. You don't see it until it, it's we right missed there. it. Yeah. There's something else that came up when you were talking that I notice a lot when I'm coaching dads is this idea that we, we forget to lead ourselves, And it's an irony because my journey in 2014 started with learning leadership and really it was just how to influence people. And that's what seemed like the natural progression. And then through the now almost seven years since then, I really had to like reframe it. Like people don't follow you at work because you have the best ideas. They follow you because of how you lead yourself. And it's those types of people that just have a way they walk, the way they talk. They're like, I just want to be like that guy. That creates like a strong sense of leadership. But we don't get that by having the smartest ideas. We get that by what we execute on the inside. And I recently had an interview on the podcast way back, and we were talking about Marine Corps leadership ethics and basic know-how the Marine Corps taught you. And there was one that was in there and it missed me all the years, now almost 15, 18 years later, it was know thyself and seek self-improvement. That is the definition of leadership the Marine Corps had. It was even in one of the manuals, like you Google it and I was like, man, it was literally right there in the manual that leadership isn't your ability to win over Marines and have the best ideas or win battles. Like leadership in the military is how well do you execute the fundamentals on your own life and if we don't often seek that internal, like you were in your case, seeking the influence of others, but then kind of forgetting that I need to learn to lead myself through what I'm going through and that I have to focus on myself first before I bring it outward. And it's that reverse equation that we kind of then can drift into something like when you're focusing on helping others, you kind of drift and you're like, how the hell did I even get here? Well, it's often like I had this in my own life. It was, I stopped leading myself and I was just following what was in front of me and also when people like what you say or when you're good at what you're doing, it's just kind of a natural drug. Like, why wouldn't you keep following what's in front of you? But reality is that, like, until you tap into the self-reflection, you don't actually know what you might be missing by just following what's already in front of you. Like the military career, like you just kept following these chains of things in front of you. But if maybe a pause for a veteran listening out there, like if you're just like Paul and you've had a military career, think about maybe that self-reflection of, am I leading my career or is a military leading my career? And I think that equation, if we get that equation wrong, can lead to different things like that. Or not in your case, just divorce, but like just transitioning out, not having a plan, staying in for 30 and then like almost staying in because you're afraid to go out. Like the, it can go in a lot of different rabbit holes. It doesn't just have to go in the place that you went to. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think one of the, to, to be fair, one great thing about the military is that the, the amount of self-reflection compared to kind of the civilian institutions 
and, and the amount of leader, the amount of effort and resources we put towards leader development, it, it, I, I tell people it's the leadership laboratory. And I think in general, most military leaders are very self-aware. And I think I was fairly self-aware as well. The challenge is, um, as you become kind of go up that pyramid, it, it kind of gets kind of lonely at the top, right? So you don't have as many peers. You don't have as many opportunities for mentorship. You don't have as many, as many opportunities to see people who are examples for you are for, for you, because the pyramid, by definition, gets narrower at the top. And so when I go back and look at that, you know, I, I think I was, I did a pretty good job at being, you know, physically fit and spiritually fit and intellectually fit. And, uh, but, but I didn't do as good a job in kind of in relationship fitness. And in some ways I didn't follow my own advice. And I, I laugh when you started this kind of theme, um, when we, when we redeployed from Iraq, I made it a point to go to every platoon's kind of reintegration brief before we left uh, country and when before they re redeployed. So when it was so important to me, we didn't lose a single soldier while we were deployed. And I knew, you know, with the stats were coming back, somebody's going to have a motorcycle accident or DUI or, you know, challenges with their, their relationships and all that stuff. And so it was a critical component to me. So I would go sit in on each one of the briefs. And I would tell them, this is my fourth combat deployment. Here are my lessons learned, et cetera. And, and one of the things I, I learned kind of, again, reflectively is, you know, I had a great marriage for the, the vast majority of my life. And I could count on my hands, maybe you know, the, the very few times we had serious fights. And you know when they all were? <laughs> After reintegration from like a year separation. Duh, because that's it. I wasn't, I wasn't exempt from that either. But I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily following the own advice. Oh, that doesn't happen to me, right? Uh, oh, oh, I've been separated from my wife for a year, so we're not going to, we're not going to get a fight. Yeah, about we've been around this rodeo before, so we know yeah. how to get through it again. Yeah. How it's just kind of ignorant and, and you know, duh. I no, want to pause and talk that. to the listener for a second because there's something you're talking about that I want to make sure everybody understands at a fundamental level of what you just talked about, Paul, is as you climbed, there was re less reflective surface around you for what you weren't seeing. And when you're at the younger, when you have a larger group, you have different mentors, you have different non-commissioned offenders, you have just a different world and you have more reflective surfaces for people to say like, dude, you need to get your shit together. But when you, when you climb higher, that idea, and we talk about this a lot, your community and your tribe are that core component that keep you honest, keep you humble, and keep you moving and growing and self-reflective. And what kind of maybe what you're talking about that we haven't really dove into is in the military structure of the command structure, it does get less reflective at the top, but that actually means you need to be more intentional to find those reflective surfaces to make sure actively that seek you them. actively seek that improvement. And what am I not seeing? But get it from places that you trust, get it from places and, and mentors that you know have walked this road and or even just like in this case, listening to podcasts of people ahead of you of what am I not seeing that I'm going to be confronting. It's almost just like a situation brief, like before you go into battle, you you get the information of what you, what, what you know about on the ground before you go. And the same kind of thing happens here. We need to be more aware, less just kind of assuming that we know all the answers because we should we've been what, what are you going to learn on the fourth try? Like those types of ideas that are just our ego talking and not the actual version of reality. But I want to make sure everybody understands that wherever you are at in your military life, veteran, active, doesn't matter. You need reflective services. And when I say reflective services, that can just be as simple as friendships. For me, the core thing that I've learned about friends is they're the mirror for the positive that you can't see if you're having a negative moment, but they can also be the reflective point for the negative when you can't, when you're just high on your own positive and you're just walking around like you're God's gift of everything. In reality is we all shit sitting down and we all have this ability to like make mistakes that reflect blind the service. Yeah. That blind, spots. blind spots. Yeah. We need those services. And that is like such a, a core lesson that I want to make sure every listener learns from your story. So Ben, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. You know, as, as a battalion commander, I, I used to tell people, look, I commanded an airborne battalion. There, there are three in the army at, at the time. I commanded one of them. What a great privilege, right? So here I was, uh, a white, male, confident, aggressive, fit, you know. Um, it, it could very easily come across as who's ours away or the highway. And my brigade commander, when I was his brigade of three, he told me that. He's like, look, 
you, you don't want that. You want diversity. You want to solicit everybody's opinions. You, you know, you don't want to come across as that guy. And so about halfway through the deployment in Iraq, um, I used to have a daily uh, a battle update assessment where the whole staff would come in, support commanders would come in and, and kind of get, get the update and everything. And um, I decided to come in. I was going to lead. We had an agenda for the boo, but I was going to come in and I was going to say something. Um, and I picked, I can't even remember what the topic was, but I said it and it was so absurd, intentionally absurd um, that I just, it was a test. And, and so I said it very kind of declarative. Uh, this is what we're going to do. And, and I waited to see if anybody would challenge the old man. And not a single person did. I'm like, wait a minute. Did you guys hear? Were you listening to what I actually just said? Would you let me kind of go off and do this kind of emperors with no clothes kind of thing? Would you really let me get away with that? Like, damn it. I, that was a test and you all failed miserably because, look, I can't have this. I need you to speak your opinion, speak your minds, and I don't want to stifle that. And I need you all to be a sounding board, not just to execute blindly the orders that, you know, that I give. If you think some of the, now, there's a time when we say, okay, yeah, I've heard you. Now, giddy up, let's go. I made the decision. But until that time happens, I, I need that reflection, right? And I, after that, I solicited and people. We, we got such much better um, staff work and products. And I, and I got all the participation of all the bright young minds around me. But I just I had the sense that we'd gotten to a point where we're getting into routine and I was in charge and, and you know, people were just going to do what I said. You were surrounded by a bunch of yes men that would have. Yes. And I don't want that. <laughs> you remind me. I'm a, so I'm a huge plane nerd and I'm always studying why planes crash. And there's one particular story of a United flight in like 1979. It was from Denver to Portland. And this plane was getting ready to land and they turned the landing gear on and the light to confirm it was down didn't turn on. And this was in a moment where there was the captain's word was God. You didn't argue with the captain and you didn't judge it. You didn't argue with it. Whatever he said was true. And essentially, as the, the captain's trying to troubleshoot this light, you can hear in the background of the recording, 3,000 pounds, 2,000 pounds, 1,000 pounds. The co-pilots are enunciating the level of fuel level. They can't say, hey, we need to figure this shit out. We're going to crash because we're running out of fuel. They literally crash a plane because it ran out of fuel. And the landing gear did come down, and it was only because of a light bulb burned out. And it was because there was a culture of where the co-pilots couldn't argue with the captain, and it was the captain's word against theirs. And it was that culture that brought down a perfectly good plane right over port in the middle of the night. And had they just landed or did a visual inspection of flying by the tower, they could have landed a perfectly good airplane and never would have survived on that plane. And it was because of the breakdown of communication. And one of the reasons why the airplanes don't crash is because they created CRM, which is crew resource management, which is the ability to articulate different problem solving and to leverage everybody's assets and resources and experience in the cockpit. And to realize that you can't just assume what the person's saying is true. It gets kind of watered down in the military because you have that like tough as nails. You need to follow what you're told to do. But at the same time, the humble pie part is, especially not when you're in garrison, that type of attitude is how people get killed. Like if you're applying that type of mindset, like I can't argue with in military at garrison, you're almost just creating a perfect storm where someone in the future is going to have a moment like that United flight and it's not going to be good. Well, if you like that, there's this really cool essay called the cognitive style of PowerPoint that I read when I was a major. Uh, and it's about basically takes a case study of when the space shuttle um, was trying to, to land and, and it lost the, um, trying to re-enter and it lost a bunch of tiles on the way up and it takes a for case the Columbia study. disaster. Yeah. 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 And it takes a case study of how that scientific data was dumbed down due to PowerPoint, the way that the way it was presented. And, and I, I, I read this essay as a major and so you can imagine what it was like, cause I was, then I was on the core staff making PowerPoint slides for all the bought. And it was just, the, the culture was terrible. It was, it was like this and I, and I'm watching it happen. But uh, you will really enjoy that because it talks about how you can't just take very technical um, oriented stuff and, and i.e. missions in the military and, and dumb them down to one page, you know, mapper with task and purpose yeah. and expect people you know, to not make mistakes and make these complex missions all of a sudden become overly simplified on a PowerPoint slide. So let's transition a little bit to where you are now coming out of the army. 
how did you get hooked on one entrepreneurship? Because I kind of have an idea maybe, but it's not usually something that we're immediately assigned. It's not the standard DOD code that they assign you. I often feel like officers have a ledge up on this though, because they see the world at a higher level because of their academic already. And so like they have maybe a leg up on the enlisted, but where did you see the world when you left that allowed you to see where you're going and where you are today? Yeah, it's a complete accident. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, I told you I was a, a, I'm a licensed professional engineer, I'm a master's in civil engineering, and I got, I went like probably six months of just networking, trying to find jobs. At one point in time, I was batting over for 40 on applications. Uh, I was getting really depressed. Um, and I just happened to get connected through this crazy series of networking events with this guy named David Howard. David is the, the founder of VetCore, the company uh, which I own now. And he, he, through this crazy series of events, I get connected. He was running a forensics engineering company, and he, and he sees me because of my my engineering background, my resume, excuse me. So we have an interview and he starts telling me about this company um, that made us kind of fortune in the cause and origin investigation of sinkholes in Florida. But that was kind of the revenue was waning because of some legislation and stuff. And so he's looking for ways to reinvent the company, vertically integrate other service offerings to these insurance company clients that they had. Well, he was an insurance guy with a, with a background, but in been an army officer for five years before all that. So he was the first C-suite level guy that I met after I transitioned out that had any idea what my resume meant and who I was as a former military He could put it into words and realize there's a much deeper story. He's like, oh yeah, this guy is a former battalion commander. He's an army corps of engineers officer. He's the deputy commander of a corps of engineers district. This is who I need on my team. And so um, he offers me the opportunity to be the president and first employee of VetCorps, a water damage mitigation company because they were looking for ways that, you know, water damage is, is the number one source of uh, homeowners claims in Florida. So they were looking for ways to, to, you know, serve these great insurance company clients in ways that they, they couldn't already. So they created this company and it was going to be a differentiator by, you know, having vets show up fit, polite on time, treat people with dignity and respect, do something to help veterans. Cause at the time the veteran unemployment rate was sky high. And, and the national unemployment rate was high, but the veteran employment, unemployment rate was even higher. And so it would be our differentiator um, kind of in service too. So I think I'm interviewing for an engineering management position. And he says, hey, I want you to be the president of this company to start it and run it. And my last job in the Army is the dean of the engineer school. I was challenged with trying to fix the Army's credentialing problem for soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines um, when they get out of the military because when you train them to do the, all those technical skills in one centralized location and then send them off to 50 different states, the states control credentialing because it's it's a state's rights kind of thing, right? So if you want a plumber's license, that plumber's license is good in Missouri, but it's not good in Ohio kind of thing. So I was working on that. And I realized that was an unsolvable problem. Now I get offered this opportunity to start this company in water damage restoration, which doesn't require any licenses or credentials. It's a national certification. I'm like, holy crap, I can solve this problem with veteran unemployment in another way if I can you know, make this company hit it big. And so I'm like, heck yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. And uh, eight months into it, another kind of longer story, but it, I had the opportunity to buy the company. So I became the majority owner and CEO. David is still my, my minority partner. We get along great. Um, he's, a, he's an executive in the insurance industry, which is kind of what created our relationships. Um, and, and he would connect me with insurance company presidents, VPs of claims, CEOs, who essentially were demographically my peer. Uh, but I went from, you know, commanding a thousand soldier and airman joint task force in Iraq to running a, a six person, you know, restoration company initially as a, as a licensed professional engineer and former battalion commander. So I would get the meetings and they would give us an opportunity to kind of prove our worth. And, uh, you know, the first thing I did to start the company was hired a retired sergeant major who was a dear friend of mine. And, and that's a recipe for success, uh, you know, to get a right-hand man, uh, a sergeant major to, to be a right-hand man and be in charge of training and operations, and all that stuff. And so we hit it out of the park. And then we started uh, two years ago, that was in 2013. And then two years ago, we started franchising that concept because we really wanted to promote opportunities for veteran business ownership now, as well as veteran, on, uh, as veteran, veteran employment. So, so does VetCore work primarily in that uh, 
recovery business of the water of like water damage yeah. or is it like more of a catalog because a lot of there's like franchisees coaches like essentially figure out who you are and plug you into the whether you're a mosquito sprayer or whether you're a, a cleaner or something like that yeah so we're a, at the heart of it we're a for-profit restoration company we primarily do water damage mitigation fire damage temporary roof tarping mold remediation uh duct cleaning floor cleaning that kind of stuff um board up and tarp um for disasters, but most of the stuff that we do on a daily basis is dishwashers, ice makers, hot water heaters, air conditioning units, roof leaks, kitchen fires, just about anything that you, you would call your insurance company for, for a loss of oh, biotrauma crime scene cleanup. Um, and, and we, what I tell people and Scott and I like to say, you know, it's science, but it's not rocket science. So you, it's not a skilled trade. Um, there is a, a, a three-day course to become a water damage restoration technician, a five-day course to be a kind of project manager certified, another three-day course for fire and smoke remediation. So there are different technical training you can get, but it's not like a skill trade where you have to get an apprenticeship or something like that. So as long as you're fit, polite, treat people with dignity and respect and willing to learn, which is the case for most veterans, we can get veterans into a sustainable, meaningful career. So I want to highlight something that you probably have already figured out is like a magic Rubik's Cube that plugs into veterans. Take us to the moment when you figured out like, because you probably didn't get, you didn't have a lot of franchisee friends before. Take me to the moment when you figured out like, I think this is something that would perfectly go backwards and apply to help fix some of the problems that you often saw early on. Like you said, you can't fix those states. So take us to that moment when you realize like, what does every veteran have that like this idea is now perfectly aligned to help serve? Oh, yeah. So, you know, my number one challenge before I got out was trying to solve this credentialing problem. A um, little bit of background that the chief engineer in the Army, he's a three-star general, um, had been the chief personnel officer of the Army before he was a chief engineer. And he came to me, he's like, Paul, we got to fix this problem because when I was the G1, the chief personnel officer of the Army, I was getting a bill to pay the Army's portion of unemployment. Because you remember what life was like in 2013, we were downsizing, the military was getting smaller. So all these people were leaving the force and they couldn't get jobs, high unemployment. So it was also a sequestered budget. So they had fewer and fewer dollars to deal with operational readiness. It's like, more and more of our budget is going to pay for something that has nothing to do with operational readiness because we're paying our share of unemployment. This is a strategic issue. So now I'm the chief engineers. Engineers are plumbers, carpenters, electricians, firefighters, 12 other skill sets that are you know, readily transferable to the civilian world. He's like, we shouldn't have this problem. And I said, yeah, Roger out, sir. We'll fix it. <laughs> and then I looked and I'm like, we can't fix it because it's you know 50 different states with 50 different standards. So that was really frustrating, right? And, and it's a time when you're kind of an adult and you realize not all problems can be solved. And this was one of them that couldn't be solved. So then I get this opportunity and, you know, I think I'm, it's about engineering and that stuff. And then David kind of explains to me what they're doing with restoration and stuff. And I was like, wow, um, maybe this is just fortuitous. And I'm just lucky that I went from this job on, you know, an active duty where I was, trying to solve this problem. And now I'm, I'm in this position, you know, if you, maybe it's luck, maybe it's destiny, who knows, but I'm like, either way I, I was fired up about it because at the same time I was having my own struggles with identity and, you know, six months after I retired, I didn't have a job because people didn't know who I was. And, you know, thought I was this knuckle dragon army officer who just knew how to shoot, move and communicate. And that was it. And now I have this opportunity to be the president of this company that can make a huge impact in the lives of veterans. And we have, and we're just getting started. And we've won a bunch of awards as a, as a result of that. And so when we get the microphone now, you know, everybody's like, well, how'd you do it? Shh, don't, don't tell anybody the secret of our success. We hire veterans. You should try it. <laughs> They're great teammates. They come with these great skill sets. They're lifelong learners, you know, et cetera. And so I and one thing knew. I've heard with franchises is we, we operate with SOPs in the military and franchises come with an owner's manual and you just have to turn the key. Although Humvees don't have keys, so that really doesn't work from a military <laughs> aspect. But the idea that there's this SOP to function what you can do on the outside without having to reinvent the wheel. One question that popped in my head, I don't know if you've ever given you a thought, 
they always say veterans really struggle with the transition of purpose, that there's an altruistic per purpose while you serve. And we often think that the purpose has to be altruistic on the outside. And then everything we do do, our career, our corporate, whatever we decide to put our energy in, never feels like it compares. How does a franchise kind of fix that or maybe reframe it for a veteran that allows them to feel it in a different way that they don't think it could if they're just kind of being ignorant, like I'm not going to be a franchise owner because I'm still kind of figuring out that and it doesn't sound like my purpose. Where could we get that wrong? So a couple things. First of all, let me, you said something about, um, you know, SOPs and that's absolutely true, but I think the stigma attached to, to veterans is we only file, uh, we only follow SOPs kind of very rotely and, and we, and people don't understand kind of the essence of a small unit leadership. And the reason that the military is so great is because of the initiative of the small unit leader. So yeah, we follow orders and yeah, we follow SOPs, but we also understand initiative and how to make them better, right? So we, we have the, it's just the building block on which we, we build, on which we start. And so when I talk to people about franchising and us as the franchisor said, I studied franchising for two years before we even started franchising. We were a restoration company. Now we're a franchising company and a restoration company. And franchising, key to franchising, as I studied it and succeeding at it, is really three things. It's training, standardizing, and replicating. You know any institutions that have a good reputation of training, standardizing, and replicating? So I'm like, the franchising has been a blast because, uh, as I mentioned, my chief operating officer is a retired sergeant major. That I mean, there are none better in the world at training, standardizing, and replicating than sergeant's major, right? And so that was really key. Um, the other thing, you know, you talked about purpose and everything. And uh, I don't know if you ever if you have ever seen that. It's on, it's in my phone. Yeah, that's it. And what I tell people, I want people in the sweet spot. So. For the people listening, it's really the finding the intersection of four things. What you love doing, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you're good at. And so when I talk about this, what you love doing, for example, right? Well, most of us, you know, like working out, right? But just because you like working out doesn't mean you should be a gym owner. Because the owner of a small business isn't the guy who's doing the personal training, or generally shouldn't be. Because the owner of the business should be working on the business, not in the business. So let me ask you this. Do you love creating opportunities for other vets? Do you love creating a brand known for timely, quality, reliable service and the value of veterans? Do you love being part of something bigger than yourself? Because if you love doing that, that's the corporate culture that, we, that we're trying to you know, create here. What you need to be paid for. That, okay, you know, don't buy a blockbuster, right? Because you won't be able to, you can't get paid for that anymore. So you have to look around the corner and, you know, don't don't buy a, a fast food restaurant without a drive through COVID taught us that kind of thing, right? So if you can buy an essential service because you can get paid for that. Okay, what the world needs, they're, they're going to need that kind of stuff. Um, you know, essential services that they can't do themselves because they're not equipped for or they don't want to do it. When I tell people it's really command control of small unit level operations, and when those small unit level operations are things that people don't want to do themselves. And that's a really good fit for people. And then what you're good at, you don't have to be good at restoration, but I, you got to be good at learning because we have a system that's going to make you succeed. You have to be good at leading a group of people. Well, when you talk to most people who we're interested in, and primarily we're trying to franchise the veterans, they were all leaders in the military. You know, even for E5, you led a team, you were probably a team leader when you got out. If you're a squad leader, you probably led eight people. Well, our offices are anywhere between eight and probably 20 people. So uh, those folks are good at that because they've got all the tactics, techniques, and procedures and experience from their military experience. So what I want is people who find the intersection of those four things. And if you find the intersection of those four things, you found your purpose and, and you'll never work another day in your life. If you believe in that kind of organization and what we try and do is, is kind of simulate, emulate the cultures, norms and values of the U.S. military, except, you know, we have beards now, so we don't have to be clean shaven every day. Uh, you know, generally I'm not wearing that. a belt now. <laughs> yeah, no formations, uh, you know, we, we, but otherwise, you know, it's the camaraderie and the esprit de corps that we're still trying to replicate.
So, you know, we believe you can still find that in, in the afterlife, particularly if you, if you surround yourself with good people like, like we have on our team here. I love what you said, and I love the way you gift wrapped it. I couldn't have teed you up better to swing that out of the park and hit a grand slam. Because even deeper, what you just tied, when you tie all of those four together, the basement of that intersection is your family. And I don't say basement because it's like the second priority. It's the foundation that all those other intersections created that can build off of and allow you to create a stronger foundation of family so that what you do build on, it doesn't come up, end up being like a house of cards or toothpicks. It's built with steel and you can have multi layers to it and it builds and it builds on top of itself. And it's that foundation that like, it's a deeper sense and ability to be the person you want to be the person you want to see on the inside, the dad you want to be. It's finding that intersection where you can like kind of just pause for a second and breathe because you're not running around with your head chopped off. And when you get that kind of like, it's like an open air kind of like middle of a, a hurricane a little bit when all that's in the middle there, it just feels like where you be, you can breathe, you can see the world clearly. And it's an intersection that really can transform everything in your family as well. It, it enables it, right? Um, so as a small business owner, was before we start franchising, I was coaching uh, a high school soccer team. My son was the captain of the team. My daughter was on the girls team. Every Tuesday and Thursday night, it was family night because I was coaching the boys team at six and the girls team played at eight or vice versa, right? I coached their club teams. How did I get to do that? Well, my boss let me because I was my boss, right? And, and so when you're a small business owner, you, 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 you manage your own internal risk, you manage your own internal schedule. So if you wanna to go to your kids play, if you wanna coach your kids team, it, it's up to you, you, you control that. And that, that was a huge, huge impact on the decision-making for me to kind of take the leap of faith because I initially bought VetCore and became the owner and then had the opportunity to franchise it. And now when I talked to my you know, potential franchisees, I said, listen, a couple things, you have the opportunity to really build wealth. And I could go on about that. That's what this podcast is for, but building wealth is important to your family. It's also important to providing you flexibility in your own time. Gives you options. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and the biggest thing though is quality of life. Because you, if you hire the right team, you train the right team, you work on the business, not in the business. I'm in a place now where I, I, I get to do things like this, to talk about the success of the business. I get to go out and, and be a veterans advocate to talk about the value of hiring veterans, which is really what I'm passionate about. And I believe that if I do that effectively, it will come back around and, and create business development for us. But even if it doesn't, I'm contributing to our mission, which I'm passionate about, which also enabled me the time I wanted to go coach my kids' teams, to go be in an assembly, to watch something, you know, those kinds of things, to take a day off whenever I wanted to or not, to take vacation or not, and to do all those things and afford those things um, that, you know, parents ought to be able to do. Um, now, it takes a leap of faith and, and not everybody can do it and you have to manage your own risk. Um, but if you can do it, you, you become your own boss and then you get to determine the allocation of your time and your resources and, and put them where first things are first. I love how you said the word risk because a couple months ago I heard a brilliant way to spell faith, which is one thing you need in entrepreneurship because you can't see everything <laughs> that you need to go after. You have to believe and have faith that it's there. But faith is actually spelled R-I-S-K, and you can't actually let faith show up until you invest in risk. No, and that sounds like crazy, no. but like the leverage of your freedom is going to be based on the amount of leverage of risk you're able to get there, and that faith will show up when you follow that risk and you put that risk out there. Because it's actually when you have little to no control over how your life shows up, that's when God transforms it the most. And it's that same kind of feeling that I've, I can tell you how many times i felt in the last two months even, where the more risk I've leveraged, the more faith shows up, and it's that faith that lets me keep going. And, and nobody understands risk management like the military. You, you know, when you say risk management in the civilian world that I live in now, it, it, it equates to insurance. That's what risk management means. And even the professional risk managers don't understand it like we did. But people misunderstand that because they think, oh, you're in the military, you're paratrooper, you jumped out at 800 feet above ground level, going 130 knots at 10 minutes after midnight with zero loom, 
you know, the risk of accidents, the risk of bodily injury, deployed to combat, life, limb, eyesight, all that kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with as a junior officer and junior NCO, the first time you ran a rifle range, you had to do a risk management worksheet. And you under, had to understand that there were two components of risk. There was the severity of risk and the probability of that risk. And you could do things to manage and mitigate the probability, and you could do things to manage and mitigate the severity. And because we understood that, we did those things. Okay, you had safeties on the rifle range. You had limits left and right. You had all these measures that went in there that you learned how to do. And it was part of our job description at every level. And the civilian world just does not understand that. Right. Which is why we were able to do so much so dangerous tasks, but do them relatively routinely because we were really good at managing risk. And And mitigating like that's another word that doesn't come off enough is identifying the risks of like what could go wrong. And as entrepreneurships, like you might be thinking if in this episode, you might be thinking like this guy, it sounds really nice, but there's just too much risk. Well, here's what happened just now in that one moment, as I said that. All of the risks are currently sitting in this pile of shit inside your head, combined with all these other limiting beliefs that are reinforcing that you can't leave who you are today. What I would challenge you to do is write those risks down on paper and then also write down how many of those can you mitigate with either ideas, solutions, maybe like cross it off because that's not likely, like just risks that aren't going to become reality. And it's that visualization of getting them outside your head, mitigating them, figuring out like, how do I install the bumper lanes of the bowling alley to make sure this bowling ball hits the pins when it's supposed to, is a lot more easier than you can think. Yep. I I talk to my franchisees and potential franchisees and people interested in franchising business owners, develop a pro forma. A pro forma is nothing other than a plan. Basically, I tell them to create 36 months uh, that's 36 columns on a spreadsheet with every line and a profit and loss statement. And before you put that number in there, open a Word document that says why you're putting that number in for how much rent's going to be, how much your revenue is going to be, how much your utilities are going to be, how much your payroll is going to be. And when you put that number down, when it, when you put it down and you're forcing yourself to write a reason why, what you're also writing is either a fact or an assumption. And what do we do in the military? We fight for intelligence and we try to turn assumptions into facts. And when you can say, oh, fact, my rent is going to be this. Oh, my utility is going to be this. My payroll is going to be this, right? So here are all my costs. So to make money, I have to get, you know, five jobs a month, 10 jobs a month or whatever. Okay. Now I know what I have to do. How am I going to go get five jobs a month? How am I going to go get 10? What do I need to do to mitigate that risk so I don't lose money that month? And you just break or just measure it. Like yeah. the fact of like, yeah, I could probably knock on four doors or yeah. talk to four people a week. Yeah. Whatever. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. <laughs> right. And you're breaking it down. And then you just decide how I'm going to mitigate that risk. And that's one of the things we train and coach the, the people to do. And when you do that, you're breaking a, pro- a complex problem down to small problems to solve that lead to your ultimate success. And you eliminate all that garbage in your head that you can't do it. Because you have the intellectual integrity that you've done it and you've, you've created the plan and you have faith in it. I absolutely love that. And it kind of puts a whole big gift bow on this whole idea. And honestly, if I wasn't all in on podcasting and being a professional speaker and a coach, I probably would be going out and setting up a, a business to tear down mold and uh, clean up uh, CSI uh, different uh, scenarios at people's houses. And it's, it's one where it makes sense, and it's one where I wish it had been information that I would have known even 10 years ago, or even after I dropped out of college. In 2014, I dropped out of college. The GI Bill wasn't working. I was going for electrical engineering because I thought I wanted to be an expert in it, but it really wasn't working. And I didn't. the grass completely dried up, and it was dry for about six months, and it still took about another three years before I even started turning the lights on in my life of figuring out where I wanted to go yet. Yeah, you know... The- it's why we just reach out to so many people in their transition. I mean, we're finding a lot of franchisees through like the Service Academy Career Conference, Service Academy Business Mastermind, Military Transition, Recruit Military, all those things. And we're just reaching out. We, we have a big social media presence just to say, hey, l- let us help with the transition. Because one, we have the scars and lessons learned. And so you'll, you'll, you'll learn lessons. Just don't learn the same ones that we learned. 
right? You'll, you'll have your own scars. Just hopefully they're not as, as severe as the scars that we had. And so we just get better through successive generations of people getting out of the military. And so we ease that transition. So it wasn't as significant. It won't be as significant as it was for me. And then we apply those. And it's one of the things we do really well in the military. We do after action reviews. What happened, why it happened, and how we can improve. And basically, that's what we've done with VetCore. What happened during my own personal transition? Why did it happen? And how we can improve when we've put that into a system to become a business owner in the restoration business. Yeah. So, Paul, if people are hooked like I was, if I could rewind, where can people go to find more information about VetCore and the franchise model? Yeah. So, we have a website, www.vetcorservices.com. It talks about our, our you know, restoration business as well as our franchising opportunities. We have a YouTube channel. Um, we have a Facebook page, LinkedIn page. Also, you can connect with me personally, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Um, I generally uh, kind of connect both with what we're doing as a company and kind of as a brand to help veterans through my personal pages as well. So I'll, I'll connect with any veteran on LinkedIn because you know, when I started, I had a profile of zero and now I have uh, something like 6,000 connections and, and I'm not bragging about that. It's just, I, I will use that for good. So if you become, if you're a veteran looking to transition, connect with me on LinkedIn, because now all of a sudden you have access to my 6,000 connections, which is something I didn't have when I transitioned. So connect with me on social media, check us out on the web, you know, give us a call, email, we're happy to follow up. And, you know, whether it's just about transition advice, business ownership, franchising in general, or, you know, if you're really interested in, in sincerely in the opportunity of VetCorp, great. But uh, any of those other things, you know, we're contributing to our mission if we're helping you with, with any of those things as well. Well, I'll put a link to vetcoreservices.com in the show notes, along with links for all your socials. If you want to take Paul up on that offer for his LinkedIn profile, I'm pretty sure at the moment I was introduced to you, I immediately made a connection to you out there on LinkedIn. So I've already checked that box for myself. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you coming to the podcast today and sharing this because I think this will be an opportunity that isn't very gray. A lot of times we've had franchises come on where we talk about the idea of franchising and it still seems far away because you still have to figure out like, am I a franchise owner? But here you gave us a very black and white like understanding of this is what it could do. This is the freedom. And it's more concrete in the previous episodes that we've had about. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. And, and everything you do. You got a great message, great podcast, and appreciate what you're doing for our former teammates out there. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Man, I really hope that episode cut right to the core and hopefully... If you were anything in the seasons that Paul was in early on before getting that divorce door, I hope that was a wake-up call. I hope that was the wake-up call that you needed in your life to really see where you could go, see where the mistakes that you were making, but more importantly, right the ship. Right the ship in regards to his marriage. If that was a wake-up call and you need a friend to talk to, reach out. Ben at MilitaryVeteranDad.com. Send me an email. I love having a conversation. I'm not directly working as a marriage coach, but a lot of what I do and a lot of the issues we see in marriage have to do with what we feel on the inside. That is exactly what I do as a coach. If that is you and you want to reach out and have a conversation, send me an email, ben at militaryveterandad.com. There are plenty of resources as well on bases for marriage support, whether it be the chaplain, military one source, wherever it may be, there are a lot of resources available to help get you to have a conversation in your marriage to re connect it to where you need to go. But my big takeaway is what we're here for. You hung on to the other side for my big takeaway. And for my big takeaway, I've heard this before, but I'm always forgetting it, that the idea of where you're meant to go is at the intersection of your purpose, what you're good at, and what you can get paid for. That middle of those three things, that is gold. Because as a veteran, there are many things that we like doing. There are many things that I like doing. I know in my own life, I used to be able to think like after I learned something, I was like, how am I supposed to decide what I want to do with my life when everything I start doing, I fall in love with? Those three questions would have changed my life on the other side. What do you enjoy doing? What are you good at? And what can you get paid for? Those questions and finding the intersection where those three meet, that is a great place to start if you're just getting started in your transition. Or if you're somewhere in the military and you are still got a few years yet, think about those things, try to align them, and use them as your compass. Because 
freedom through entrepreneurship was a big theme of this episode. And I hope that you felt that entrepreneurship is a great way to create opportunity out of nothing and to give you choices in your life to take you in places that aren't really easily found within the corporate world, within having a job. And so that was a big takeaway for me. And so to wrap up this episode, it is the week before Christmas. We are counting down as your kids are probably counting down. My kids are counting down as well. As a person who's been doing this podcast for three years, three years we're coming up on January 1st, I am humbly grateful for every time someone listened to this podcast. You continue to be the mirror for the value that I often didn't see before I started this podcast. So like I said, if you're out there, and you need any help this holiday season, send me an email, ben at militaryveterandad.com. If you are also looking to set a goal for next year and you're struggling to figure out what do you want to do, some of the things that I've done in my life that really kind of catapulted me into different places is I picked a word of the year, and that word began to design and change everything. And also, the universe would start testing me when I had that word as well. So I hope that your memories of Christmas are just as good as mine coming up and that everything works out, and whatever you have going on in your life, that you're able to find some resemblance of Christmas and the feeling of what we get to celebrate, that Jesus Christ came into this world, and that we get to bring this feeling of connectedness, this feeling of letting go, but then also remembering that the connection to our family is really what's going to fuel us. And I hope that you have an opportunity to create that. Guys, I'll be back with you on the other side of Christmas on December 27th, and I will talk to you guys then.